The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Last week we began to talk about the subject of the technical designation would be the canon of Scripture, C-A-N-O-N, the collection of the books that are recognized in the Bible, and we looked at the Old Testament side of this. I want to look more at the New Testament side of the issue. There really isn't one text that introduces this, but I'm going to read two, and there are some others that I'll mention along the way. First, I'm reading from Second Peter, a letter late in the New Testament near the end, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 14 and following. Here is God's Word. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability." But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Then I just go a little further to the very last page of the New Testament. You can find this text real easily because there's nothing after it except maps in my Bible. The last page of the book of Revelation, chapter 22. I'm going to read beginning at verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. But I warn everyone who hears the word of prophecy in this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. There are those who will take up an argument to say 
that because as they look at it and understand it, in church history, it was some form of the church or a council or gathering of church officials that acted and made decisions to decide what books would be in our Bible, they would say that that act, the church being able to choose the New Testament books, indicates that the church has authority at least as great as the Bible itself. In other words, the church made the Bible, so why isn't the church's authority the same as the Bible's authority? We believe there's a more accurate way to look at history and the canon of Scripture. It would be, if I agreed with those folks, it would be as if I was saying Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. Isaac Newton didn't invent gravity. He happened to observe it, recognize it, and was able to point it out to the scientific community of his day. For the first time, people realized what gravity actually was as Newton wrote about it. But in the same way, God gave us the New Testament canon of 27 books of his own writing by inspiring them in the hearts of apostles who gave this word from God himself. And churches of early Christianity, the New Testament era, slowly recognized these books, very slowly, and I must say very haphazardly was the process by which they were finally all recognized. But we cannot accurately say the church decided what is in the Bible. That is really inaccurate. Last week, I sought to show you the trust that we have in the Old Testament collection of books. There, it was, it was a long and gradual, but actually rather easy and uncontested process whereby Moses wrote what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books beginning with Genesis, and other historians gave us books like 1 Samuel and Judges and Joshua, and poets gave us the Psalms, and wisdom writers gave us Ecclesiastes, and prophets spoke Isaiah and Malachi and many others. And as those things came forth, I mentioned to you that the Jewish rabbis in all of the synagogues of the land would carefully study the Word of God, and they would dissect it and compare it and argue over it and contrast it and so on until they had really thoroughly digested it. And out of all that, if you think of it as like a giant filtration system operating, any possibility of some book looking like or seeming like a book of Scripture would be rejected would be recognized how it just did not compare. And we had a result then that, just summarizing centuries of history, that by the time of the birth of Christ, by the first century, the 39 books of the Old Testament were securely agreed upon. Jesus, you know, of course, contested things with the the scribes and the Pharisees and teachers of the law, many interpretations and much of the understanding of Scripture, he was opposed to what they were saying. But in no sense whatever did he ever disagree with them about what books composed the Word of God. That was agreed by all. Well, today we want to think more about the New Testament side of this equation. And what we face today in this is people trying to rewrite history. We've got this in all kinds of fields, if you know anything about history today. Revisionist history, we call it. You look back 
and you, you, you know, let's say you were writing about slavery or race in our country, and, and people would tend to go back and, all right, they want to rewrite what happened. And, and they do it through 21st century eyes, analyzing things according to what we think should have happened and so on, rather than understanding what did happen and, and the actual forces that shaped early history of race in our country. We see this in relation to the New Testament in particular. And I mentioned last week, briefly, one of the most egregious recent occasions of this. It's not alone at all, but it's one of the best-known occasions, and that is that movie of 10 years ago, The Da Vinci Code. Very fascinating movie, exciting movie to watch, engrossing movie. Well-made movie, by and large, but a movie that is decked out with every kind of falsehood that could possibly be committed against the Word of God. This film asserts the fact, and and just gives it as an actual fact with no debate allowed, that in the first three centuries after Christ, there were rival Christianities, groups that had rather different emphases. One group over here that would say Jesus was just a Judean peasant teacher, and he was misunderstood, and he never intended to call himself the Son of God or divine. That despite so much material to the contrary in the Gospel of John. Over here's another group, and their emphasis was from what we call Gnosticism, a higher knowledge kind of thing that they all believed in. And a group over here and a group over here, and they all had clashing versions of Christianity. And they also had writings that were different representing their various views. Now, to a certain extent, there's some truth in that. But the Da Vinci Code then spun out a tale that was utterly false in telling about a real church council that actually happened, the Council of Nicaea, one of the most important early church councils in 325 A.D., called, indeed, by Emperor Constantine, a powerful emperor who had bishops working around him and so on. He called for a council. Now, the truth of the matter is the council was called to deal with the doctrine of the Trinity. And it did deal with the doctrine of the Trinity. And the Nicene Creed came out of the Council of Nicaea. Very important things happened there. But in no sense whatsoever did something happen that Da Vinci Code claimed that Constantine and his bishops just took up the Gospels that they thought were right, stamped them approved, and wiped out and made illegal all the others. And the ones, of course, that they approved were the ones we have. So that's how we got our New Testament, a power play by Constantine and a group of bishops. Absolutely false. The subject was not even dealt with at the Council of Nicaea. And yet, the movie leaves it out there as if it's just 100% true. Well, we didn't get the New Testament canon that way. We did not get it by the power play of ecclesiastical councils saying, you must accept our books and not any others. didn't happen that way. It did happen with a fair amount of conflict going on and a fair amount of disagreement over certain things in the Bible. I'll try to touch on it a little bit today. The question becomes, how may we be sure that the New Testament does not contain too many books or too few? Maybe they're all wrong. I mean, worst-case scenario, somebody got it completely wrong. If human beings made the decision, human beings are liable to error. 
And you may think, as some do, well, maybe there's a book buried out there in the dust of Egypt somewhere or somewhere in the Middle East that's going to be found that would come forward and present a whole new illumination on who God is and who Christ is, and and we're lacking that, and our New Testament's got a big hole in it. Well, as a first point today, I want you to see this, that Jesus, first of all, prepared his disciples to look for further revelation. Now, remember, we had the Old Testament pretty united about what books were in it, but everyone would have agreed that, in a sense, the Old Testament, 39 books of it, were an unfinished book. The collection was truth that was leaning forward to the future, saying something big is coming. Whether that something is the suffering servant of Isaiah, whether that something is the son of man from Ezekiel, something is coming for the redemption of Israel. And Israel was left as a people bereft and imprisoned and defeated at the end of the book. And the the Old Testament looks forward and says, God is going to do a new thing. So there's this sense of expectation of further revelation. Well, God didn't drop from heaven a new book with 27 parts in it. What he did do instead was send us his son, the living word. Now, never that I'm aware did Jesus tell his disciples, at least we don't have it recorded, that he told them they would become authors or they would write anything. And probably they had no notion initially of becoming authors, but yet Jesus did tell them that they would be entrusted with the message of his cross and resurrection, and they would carry that message into the world, into the four corners of the world. Well, one way to carry it is to speak it, of course, and they did that. But another way is to write it down, and the message itself can go without necessarily a spokesman. We encounter the word apostle. I hope you understand that the 12 disciples, of course, we take Judas away and there's 11, formed an inner circle around Jesus, and all of them came, became known as apostles. An apostle was basically a witness of the resurrection after the cross and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. The name apostle began to use, be used of them. Paul was added to that circle because Christ revealed himself in a particular way to Paul. And a few others, like Luke and Barnabas and some were no, who were not among the original twelve, were called apostles because they were part of that inner circle who saw the glory of Christ and could be eyewitnesses to report it and carry the message. A theologian of today named John Frame wrote, God intended to rule his church through a book, that book, of course, being the New Testament. And we see that Jesus actually planned for the New Testament to come about even before his death. I'll give you two texts that that give us evidence of that. They're both in John. John 14, 26, he told the twelve, There, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance what I've said to you. He was telling this to the twelve who became apostles. You will need the Holy Spirit to stir you up to remember what's important and to focus the truth in such a way that you can be transmitters of it. Again, in John 16, 13, we hear him say to the same audience, 
When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into truth. He will not speak his own things, but whatever he hears of me, he will speak and declare to you things that are to come. Here in these two texts, at the very least, you can hear Jesus foreseeing, planning for, predicting that there's going to be a stirring up, a remembrance of truth so that it can be communicated towards a correct knowledge of Christ for many others to hear and know. He made provision for the further revelation that we call the New Testament. Secondly, I want to mention to you what became, just in a sort of process of history, what became the main criteria to analyze or decide upon a book that it would be accepted into the New Testament. And there's three of these. And you'll maybe learn a couple new words you haven't used very often. The first criteria is that a book must obtain or show a pedigree of what we would call apostolicity. Now, you should be able to figure that word out. Belonging to an apostle that an apostle either was its direct author or that he was directly involved with the author as a witness to the truth that that person is writing down. The church said, look, here are these unique men who've been with Christ. They're not just speculating about Christ. They're not giving secondhand ideas about Christ. They knew him. They heard his words, and he promised to them this Holy Spirit guidance. So the fact that an apostle was involved with a book was a huge uh, requirement to think that this should ever be considered at the level of Scripture. Now, of course, there were those who were direct apostles who wrote Matthew, John, Paul, of course, Peter, James, But there are others who were not. Luke was not one of the original twelves, was not even a a Jew. He was a Gentile doctor, but had a deep and close relationship with Paul. Mark was actually a young man who sort of stood on the outskirts of the twelve disciples, active with them, knew them, especially knew Peter, and later on became more or less a special assistant to Peter. And it was Peter's reflection that gave Mark the authority to write the gospel that bears his name. But here's something that apostolicity means. It means that these books would have to be written while the apostles are still alive. Now, we know pretty clearly that all the apostles had died by about 100 A.D. You might stretch that a couple years. We're not exactly sure, for example, of the death of John, but we think that he was the last to die somewhere right around 100 A.D. So if you're going to have a book with apostolic direct influence upon it, it needed to be written by 100. That's pretty important because if if we're competing with a book written in 250 A.D., that's a whole different matter, isn't it? There's no apostle alive to influence that book. And what you had happening was that in the second and third centuries moving forward, You had other people writing things, writing their ideas about Jesus, sometimes a little skewed one way or the other, sometimes a lot of their own original ideas in there. But they would write, for example, the Gospel of Thomas, which wasn't written by Thomas, but claims Thomas's name. The Gospel of Judas is in much 
discussion, or was a few years ago. It's pretty much been discredited since. But, you know, there was a gospel of Mary, a gospel of Peter. And people would spin off these gospels and put an apostle's name on it to get attention. Why? And somebody, oh, oh, look, Peter must have written a gospel that we didn't know about. And then people analyzed it and looked at it and saw, well, no, this didn't really come from Peter. So apostolicity was one big factor. Secondly, another word you don't use every day, I guarantee, the, a book to be accepted for Scripture needed what we call Catholicity. More questions are asked about the Apostles' Creed over the word, why is Catholic in there? I'm not a Catholic. Yes, you are. You belong to the Holy Universal Church. You may not belong to the Roman Catholic Church, but you belong to the Holy Catholic Church. Universal is all it means. For a book of Scripture to have Catholicity is a fancy way of saying it's widely accepted. It's not just that people at Corinth or Philippi happen to like this book, but it's broadly accepted by Jews and Gentiles, people in North Africa, people in Italy, people in Greece, people in Jerusalem, and so on. It is widely viewed as being authoritative. And then there's another word that applies, orthodoxy. That one you do know. That the doctrine of this book is able to be seen as unified with or coherent with what is known from other sure books of Scripture and the Old Testament. It's not something bizarre or weird. You know, we have this Gospel of Thomas, which is still today, people want to say, one of the books we're supposed to consider. Well, it's 150 years or maybe 200 younger than any biblical book. It has some things in it that are exactly out of the four Gospels, which it seems to be copied from, and it has some really bizarre things. I'm not going to go into an analysis of all of that detail. You can find it out if you want to check it out. Well, through a long process, the church milled over these things and mulled over these things, and the four Gospels that we know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, were accepted quite easily. Not much contest there. One early church scholar called the four Gospels the four corners of the earth. No real contest with those. But there were books that there was a contest. Some of them were James, the one, that, one of them that I read from. Second Peter was not highly accepted at first. Second and third John, Jude, and guess what? Revelation. Are you surprised? The book of Revelation, of course, confounds many people with its symbolism and its difficulties. And these books were contested, and some said, no, we don't think that's genuine, and so on. But yet, by about 160, 175, 180 in that era into the second century, there really wasn't great opposition left to any of the 27 books that we know. Most of the controversy had been settled with a broad consensus among the churches, even before any church council said, this is the official collection. We know that in 367, now that sounds like a long time, but here we had Athanasius, the bishop of Egypt, Alexandria in Egypt. Athanasius, just in a casual letter, wrote in the the names of the 27 New Testament books, and that was the first time any authority had actually written down the list. But Athanasius wasn't saying, I'm settling the controversy. He was saying, these are the books that have long been accepted. 
And he gave the list of the 27 that we know. 30 years later came an official council, the Council of Carthage, and they actually dealt with this subject and said it's about time that somebody put an official stamp on what is the New Testament. And so they, by an official action of bishops, Council of Carthage in 397, almost 400 A.D., finally said, these are the 27 books, no others. Well, you say it took a long time for the winners to win. But the winners won inclusion in the canon because they deserved to win on the basis of their strong authority and all that they represented. And they really, long before that, before some council said, this is it, the broad, huge consensus of believers were not troubled over what was the New Testament. Despite what you will hear sometimes from things that are written, there is no book known to exist today that seriously rivals the books of the New Testament, Gospels and letters. The unique content that is there was organically obvious as bearing authority from God. I want to use this comparison for you to maybe really bring it down to earth, and I do not believe that my comparison exaggerates. Many of you know that the Olympic champion Michael Phelps comes from Towson, Maryland, just south of here. Winner of 20, what is it, 24, I think, gold medals for swimming. My wife and I used to live in Towson, Maryland. Michael Phelps would have been a little boy when we lived there. But let's, let's give a suppose if he, Michael uh, Phelps lives there today. I think he graduated from Towson High School where our boys spent a little time. And uh, let's say he has a friendly relationship with a swimming coach at Towson High School. And the coach says, Michael, would you come and give a pep talk to the, to the swimmers? In fact, boy, you'd really grace us if you'd come and swim with us. We're going to have a swim meet. And we know that, of course, you're going to beat everybody. But would you come and swim in five of the races, your best races, and just model your swimming form. And so Michael comes, and I don't know, you know, breaststroke, butterfly, freestyle, whatever. He enters into five races with high school boys, all right, 15, 16, 17, 18-year-olds. Now, you know what's going to happen. If, if a race is four lengths of the pool, Michael's going to beat the fastest high school boy by at least a full length of the pool, maybe two. I don't have any idea. But he'll beat them all, hands down, won't he? And suppose the Towson paper reports Phelps enters high school swim contest and wins five races. Well, anybody who would apply their mind to that at all would say, well, of course he won all the races. Look at him. He's far superior. He's older. He's more developed. He's more experienced. Of course he blew away the competition. Well, I'm saying to you it is not an exaggeration to say that our books of the New Testament did that to all other pretenders. You will hear today people say, well, oh, you've got to consider that this book was one of the ones considered. Listen, it's like the 15-year-old staring at Michael Phelps a length and a half of the pool in front of it in terms of what was there and what was to be considered. I tell you this, and I'm telling you the truth. Now, I ask you to consider a third point, and that is this. I'll try to make it as quick as I can. That apostolic authors had a definite consciousness 
that they were writing Scripture. This is denied sometimes. People say, well, Paul didn't have any idea that he was writing a letter that was going to be bound in the Bible one day with Psalms and Isaiah. He was just writing a letter. Well, here are the texts that I read for you. Here's where they come in. 2 Peter 3.16. Peter, very important apostle, is speaking there about letters written by his fellow apostle Paul. And he says, now they're both alive at this time, there are things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand which ignorant and unstable people twist to their own destruction. Listen, as they do other scripture. That's a bombshell statement that Peter has just made. He is making a statement that he is an apostle of Christ regards the writings of his fellow apostle Paul as scripture, the word reserved for the Old Testament law and prophets and psalms. Peter regarded what the apostles were doing as the production of scripture. And if he thought that was true for Paul, don't you think he thought the same for what Matthew or John wrote or he himself? There was a consciousness that the apostles were producing scripture. The other text I read for you comes at it a little bit different angle. Revelation 22, the very last page of the New Testament, it was written last, probably about 96, 97 A.D., John's closing words are, if anyone adds to the word of this prophecy, the book that he is completing, God will add to him the plagues described in this book, and if anyone takes away from the words of this book, God will take away his share in the tree of life. In other words, don't add, don't subtract. What I have written is sacrosanct. You take it all or don't take it in any way. Now, we know that John there was very consciously echoing. Chances are, if you have a uh, reference Bible, you might have a center column reference there to Deuteronomy 4.2 or 12.32. We think John was quite consciously echoing words of Moses that he had said on an earlier occasion, writing about the law of God, don't add, don't subtract, the same thing. So here is, is someone saying, look, what I have given you is entirely of God If you take away from it, you're taking away what God wants you to know, and God's curse will be on you. And not only is he saying this, he's saying it primarily, of course, about the book itself, Revelation. But we can at least speculate, and I think we're not off base to speculate, that knowing this would be in the providence of God, the last book of Scripture, there's a sense in which what John has said there applies not just to the book of Revelation but to the whole collection of Scripture, everything that goes before. Don't mess with Scripture, John was saying. A couple other texts quickly, Ephesians 2.20. Paul said there, the household of God is built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. Isn't that interesting? Apostles and prophets in the same breath. Paul saying what prophets wrote, of course, was Scripture, He's also saying what apostles wrote as Scripture. Galatians 1.12, the same Paul said he was rejoicing that people did not receive his message as being from a man, but rather he got it from direct revelation of Jesus Christ. And we can go on. We could, I could add more text there that shows that the writers of the New Testament book did have a definite consciousness that what they were doing 
was equal to Scripture, equal to the weight and the value of the Old Testament that was not questioned. Some conclusions quickly. Evangelical scholars will tell you today that the question before you is not whether you have sufficient evidence to accept the collection of 27 books in our New Testament. The right question to ask is this. Do you actually have any evidence not to? And I will ask it and say, I defy you to show me the evidence. The evidence that makes the popular books that hit the bestseller lists are bogus, quite frankly, just bogus. The Da Vinci Code sold millions of copies. And lots of students said, aha, I always knew the Bible was a fake somehow. Well, the book is a fake. And the things it cited were simply not true. They were not historical. The real evidence rests on the person who would somehow tell us that the books of our New Testament do not belong, because they do. And they stand out head and shoulders the way Michael Phelps would stand out against a group of 15-year-old swimmers. In the final analysis, we trust in the providential guidance and preservation of God upon his word. I haven't even mentioned that, have I? It's not all just a human-based contest of the church figuring it out, figuring out the puzzle and giving the prize to a certain group of books. It's more about God miraculously saving for us out of thousands and thousands of scraps of brown, decayed papyrus manuscripts that can be compared one with another to say, well, what does John 5 really say? What does Mark 6 actually say? We've got piles, thousands of scraps of manuscripts that can be compared to find out what it actually said. And as a matter of fact, many people don't realize the Bible is better attested to by the evidence of early manuscripts than almost any other ancient book. Famous books like Homer's Iliad and Odyssey have approximately 20% of the texts backing up the Greek text, as does the New Testament. The Wars of Julius Caesar have actually very few ancient manuscripts to back it up. The New Testament has hundreds. Surely God's guiding hand is in this. You have to add the factor that the Bible has been hated and, and people have wanted to destroy it. The Roman emperors, Diocletian and Julian, made it a crime to possess a Bible. People were burned at the stake for having Bibles or for preaching. William Tyndale was burned for putting the Word of God in the English language so common people could read it. But the Bible survived. Nobody who's ever burned a Bible did one thing to decrease or hold back its powerful advance through the world. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. My word will not pass away. We can be confident, ladies and gentlemen, that God guided this marvelous process by which we have our New Testament. Yes, it was kind of contested for a time, but after the shouting and the arguing, it was pretty clear what the conclusion was. The 27 books we have are divine communication from God. And our confidence in that and in all 66 books ultimately rests not in the pages of the book. It rests in the God 
who gave us the book. God spoke these things, and the decisions about the canon were made because no one could prevent them from being accepted. it's, It's as if the Bible was a bulldozer going through history, pushing aside those who had competitive ideas or opposite opinions. One scholar said the New Testament canon might as well have forced itself upon the church by its undeniable apostolic authority. Folks, I can speak to you Sunday to Sunday from a sure text. I can say, thus says the Lord. I can say, it is written. And I don't waver in the confidence that I'm speaking what God would want to be known. These gospels, these letters, speak because Jesus Christ speaks in them. If you hear his voice, he will be light and life to you. Our Father, I thank you. How terrible it would be if we were uncertain about what you had given us, about which books to choose. And we were still debating this at this stage of history. Lord, have mercy on those who are still debating or at least are telling us in their writings that this is still an inconclusive subject. Will you have mercy on those with PhDs who understand ancient languages and know things and are deliberately twisting for some sake of establishing a reputation for themselves or creating a bestseller, have mercy on them. Let them see the truth of your word that is right before them. Thank you, Father, for the gift of your word. You still speak. Help us to listen. Help us to hear. Help us to believe. For Jesus' sake, amen.